During this season after Easter, the sermons and scriptures we've been studying have helped us understand the resurrection of Christ as unleashing spiritual power to all who believe. I'm going to move when the Spirit says move. And every time I feel the Spirit moving in my heart, I will pray. Our hymns capture this sentiment well that God's Spirit is alive, still at work, and it changes us. It helps us trust a power higher than ourselves when we need to change. It pulls us into service of others. The Spirit protects and guides us in times of adversity. And today we'll discover that God's Spirit shelters and strengthens us to stand up for a righteous cause, even when it is unpopular. Our two scriptures, short portions of Psalm 31, and from the end of the story of Stephen in the book of Acts, both attest to the nearness of God when persons face trouble for doing what's right. In Psalm 31, verse 15, the writer pleads, My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and persecutors. And later, gives voice to praise. Oh, how abundant is your goodness that you have laid up for those who fear you and accomplished for those who take refuge in you in the sight of everyone. In the poignant scene we heard from the book of Acts, Stephen, whose story we'll investigate later on, has finished a long speech while standing on trial before the Sanhedrin. The hearers react with rage and are preparing to rush and drag him from the courtroom, but Stephen's attention is captivated by a glorious vision of heaven being opened with God and Jesus standing in it side by side. He's so taken by it that he wants to share it. Look, even while he is taken over by the mob and they begin to stone him, his attention is still focused on the glorious, mysterious presence that was revealed and he gives his spirit to Jesus and then transformed. He asks for forgiveness on behalf of those killing him, much as Jesus had in his dying. Stephen had been so filled with the spirit that he overflowed with God-like mercy, even in his pain. That prayer for mercy on his enemies perhaps blessed Saul, who was standing there watching approvingly but who later became Paul, the apostle. I probably haven't made a very compelling case for God being a refuge, shelter, and deliverer for those who commit themselves to standing up for what is right by including Stephen's story of martyrdom with this message. And so I'm thankful for Howard Fradkin's testimony about his experiences of spiritual strength while pursuing righteous causes because we can see Howard healthy, well, and if you've ever seen Howard sing in a joy concert, you know he is happy. But in the interest of full disclosure, I thought I should acknowledge that having the strengthening and empowering presence of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that standing up for righteous, unpopular causes is easy, nor is it a guarantee of short-term success. Why should it be so hard to do the right thing why, when things seem so clearly good, should they be hard to do or receive persecution? Why, when a physician like Dr. Li Wenliang simply tries to warn other medical workers about a disease so that they can protect themselves, would that be sanctioned? 
The reflections of the writer of Psalm 31 and of Stephen in his speech before the Sanhedrin give us a clue. Both believe that they are battling idols that others hold dear. It is an unfortunate consequence for me at least, and this is probably for those who are my age and older, um, of growing up watching Cecil B. DeMille's film version of The Ten Commandments as a child, that the words idol and idolatry immediately bring to mind a large golden calf like the Israelites built while Moses ascended Mount Sinai. I'm thankful to theologians like Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel for giving me a more nuanced and relevant definition. Heschel says an idol is a thing, a force, a person, a group, an institution, or an ideal regarded as supreme. God alone is supreme. Others have said that an idol is something that we view as ultimately significant. Reverend Tim Keller helps illumine how very common idols are. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters, he identifies 20 of what he views as the most common idols today. I'd encourage you to get the book and take a look at them. It's quite interesting. Having these idols seems to give our lives secure value and meaning, but that security is an illusion because they're less than God. Some of the counterfeit gods Keller identifies are an idolatry of power, of having others' approval, materialism, an idolatry of comfort, idolatry of race or class superiority, or of ideology. He suggests that we can begin to uncover our own idols by asking, how would we fill in the blank to this question, I have value, or my life is worth living because some of his idols that he suggests we check ourselves against are, I am adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplished in its activities, which he calls religion idolatry. People, individually and collectively, protect idols fiercely. I suspect that in Howard's journey, some of the righteous causes he has pursued have put him in conflict with others' religious idolatry and with perhaps an idolatry of gender roles and heteronormativity. Dr. Li Wenliang's medical observations clashed with the idol of the ideology of the nation as competent manager in control. Some things that we stand up to change may be simply wanting for someone to identify the need and say, yes, I'll invest there. I'll give my energy to that effort and I'll stick with it and make a change. Not all righteous causes are unpopular by any means. It just may be that they take work, elbow grease, initiative, creativity, and grit. They'll go a long way. But God is particularly present with us when we are fighting righteous causes. How would we identify a righteous cause? And should we go looking for unpopular causes? I want to think with you about Stephen's story a little deeper. 
I have to admit that I was filled with dread when I saw that one of my lectionary texts for preaching this week was the stoning of Stephen. It's terrible to say, but I've always found it difficult to relate to. And I think many of my mental and emotional obstacles have been misunderstanding him based on the often evoked description of Stephen as the first Christian martyr. I had trouble uh, a little bit with just the concept or talking about the concept of martyrdom. As you know, a martyr is a person who's put to death or endures great suffering on behalf of any belief or principle or cause. Martin Luther King Jr. was a martyr for the cause of racial and economic justice, and there have been many others. I'm a little uncomfortable lifting up martyrdom because I always worry that Number one, it slightly obscures the work and the cause that was the individual's main concern. Or I worry that I might make light of the violence done by elevating a murder into a martyrdom. And third, it could be twisted to encourage some folk notions of suffering as a badge of achievement for religious folks. We occasionally see people who play the martyr, which means that they act like someone who deserves admiration or sympathy because of being badly treated. Although Christians have good cause to believe that death is not our final word, martyrdom should not be our goal, either as a martyrdom of death or of perpetual suffering. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Well, I've also been uncomfortable about naming Stephen as the first Christian martyr. It seems to imply that Stephen was the victim of one religion persecuting another, Jews persecuting a holy man for professing his faith in Jesus as the Son of God. But this is inflammatory and and kind of inaccurate. Stephen was a Jew who gave a long speech in response to the charges brought against him before the Sanhedrin. These were different groups of Jews who thought differently about Jesus, all kind of disagreeing with each other and jockeying, in a sense, for influence. Almost the entire content of Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin concerns a reading of the history of the Jewish people that emphasizes God's movement leading the people to realize God's promises and the episodes in which people found it hard to move with God and either resisted or turned to idols. Stephen only once alludes to Jesus, and then not by name, but as the righteous one who had been persecuted as were the prophets of old. One would have expected the first Christian martyr to be one of the apostles whose main work was teaching about Jesus and building up the community's understanding of the word of God. When I went back to look at Stephen's life, just occupying a few chapters in the book of Acts, I started seeing him completely differently. You see, Stephen was the leader of a group of seven people who were commissioned to solve a problem and meet a need in the early Christian community. In those days of the early church, persons were pooling their resources, creating a common stock so that there was no one in need among them. 
They were taking care of those who had need from that common pool of community goods, and widows were among the main recipients of the community goods. Within that Jewish community of believers in Jesus, it had really not spread out to Gentiles yet, there were Jews who spoke Greek and Jews whose native language was Hebrew. So there was kind of a natural linguistic and perhaps life experience division. There were complaints that the Greek-speaking Jewish widows were being shortchanged in the distribution of the community goods. So the church decided to pick special leaders, whom we now refer to as deacons, to handle distributing the community food bank. Stephen was the first among these seven, and perhaps their leader, their task was to distribute the community wealth more equitably, which of course meant that they were involved in wealth redistribution. Once I started looking at Stephen in that lens, as someone who was involved in making decisions that redistributed the wealth of the community, I realized how quickly that could have gotten him into trouble with people whose leadership and power depended on certain arrangements of benefactors and gratitude flowing towards them. I think Stephen angered the powers that were part of the temple establishment because he was rearranging the material goods among people who aligned themselves then differently with the temple. All that followed after that, all of Stephen's putting together one piece after another of some of the challenges that were faced by the community were things that Stephen poured out in his speech. He was just standing up for the right to do the work he was empowered to do for the good of the community. When I think about Stephen's example, I realize your righteous cause, my righteous cause, our righteous causes really are near us. And we might well identify them while we are seeking just to problem solve in our own settings. Maybe when we're seeking justice for ourselves or trying to meet a need close to home. In a sense, our righteous causes find us. And they can be all kinds of things. In these past months, one of our members has been desperately trying, like everything, to get affordable dental care for advanced medical need, dental needs paid by Medi Medicaid. It is in scarce supply. It's a righteous cause. It's one that might align her with others in the community seeking to change the way that care happens. Your cause might be improving the quality of your child's education. It might be securing appropriate protective gear from your employer or working on finding better affordable housing. Your righteous cause will find you, and perhaps it'll even find you in your house 
I know that so many right now have new challenges that they are facing. And the good news is that when we are working on our righteous cause, God is never more present with us, giving us strength, guidance, perhaps bringing other people into our lives who can be part of our team. God loves fighting alongside us. And if we come to find a righteous cause that embraces us and that we embrace and to which we commit ourselves, we might well say, along with the psalmist, my times are in your hands. How abundant is the good that you do for those who commit their cause to you, O oh God. I want to say a special uh, happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers, who, um, many of whom have special um, challenges right now, doing schooling for kids at home, and juggling quite a bit more um, management of children and family, and trying to make everything work. That is um, always a righteous cause. God bless you. Happy Mother's Day. And I want to say a special thank you to Howard Fradkin also for his wonderful witness. Amen.